Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. When we think of St. Louis, Missouri, we often imagine the iconic Gateway Arch honoring the early 19th century exploration of Lewis and Clark and America's westward expansion. The city also includes an entwined history of racial capitalism and violence. It was the launching point of our extermination of Native Americans, a place where the white population enslaved, excluded, exploited, and removed blacks. But the city has a legacy of resistance that fights and endures. Is St. Louis the broken heart of America? Let's discuss. Well, hello, warm greetings, everybody. We have a very special guest, uh, uh, Dr. Walter Johnson, uh, today discussing his, his new book, which we'll, we'll mention in a second. And Walter Johnson's a Winthrop uh, professor of history and a professor of African-American studies at Harvard University. And in our previous uh, podcast, we had on your, your colleague, uh, uh, Gerald Horn, and at the end of the, the the podcast, he says you've got to get Walter on because we were talking about about slavery and American history. And I think uh, I could wouldn't be exaggerating if I wouldn't wasn't saying that you're one of the experts in that area in our in our uh, contemporary experts in that area. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think placed next to to Gerald Horn, I'm a novitiate. <laughs> and you know Gerald Horton is a is a giant, and yeah. I I have been feeling for almost all of my career, you know, like like I'll feel like oh my goodness I'm such a bright boy I've got a new idea, maybe I'll try to write about this, and you know immediately go to the library and find out that Gerald Horn wrote that book five books ago. Oh God, <laughs> you know, and so it it is uh you know that's that's a really really nice way to to come into your program with right, his right. recommendation. Well, I want to talk about a couple of your books. Uh, I this is your I don't know if it's your first book, uh, yep. Soul by Soul, and I read this, and it's just a remarkable uh, account of New Orleans slavery and the slave trading market. You know, those the largest trading where where the, you would have the buyers, the slaves, the traders, right. Um, and the the relationship between them and how they treated them as a commodity I, it's just fascinating that how you were able to get historic information about the details uh, apparent in apparent in that book wonderful book and then i i have a confession to uh or i have a, a confession to say that i am not i'm only halfway done with your second book Rivers right. of Dark Dreams, Slavery, the Empire, and Cotton King. And this is, again, picking up on, on slavery and the economics of it, um, how it spread. Um, I, I, I think I could say both these books won about every book award, <laughs> award uh, that was given uh, regarding, uh, re regarding history books. They're just absolutely wonderful. And you are a, you're just a a, a great writer and very thorough. But today we're talking about this book, and this is your most recent book, The Broken Heart of America. And it's a, 
a book about America from, uh, well, you, des you describe it, you describe it. St. Louis and um, the history of America told through this, this one town. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to make the point that um, in many, many ways, St. Louis exemplifies the history of the United States. And in almost as many ways, it is actually the place where that thing that we call the history of the United States was made. And so I was struck, um, I guess I, I, I started out in 2014 trying to do a little bit of work on the political economy of Ferguson, Missouri, and we can talk about that. But as I did that work, I was struck by the number of important Supreme Court cases that came from St. Louis, whether that is the, the Dred Scott case or whether that's Shelley versus Kramer, which is a housing rights case, or Green versus McDonnell Douglas, which is an employment rights case or indeed the, um, the Blackjack case, which is the, you know, the, the Jones versus Meyer and then the Blackjack case, which are um, extraordinary cases, which actually make the jurisprudence of housing discrimination in the United States slightly different from other forms of, of discrimination. And I guess because I'm from Missouri and, and I, I suppose I'm from Missouri, you know, I'm from Missouri, but I left when I was 17 and um, and I went to college in Massachusetts. And of course, everybody here believes that everything important in American history, they did, you know, and to the point that that I, I almost had, you know, I used to have like some kind of PTSD when I'd see a Massachusetts license plate that said Massachusetts, you know, I can't even remember what it said, the heart of America. And it would just start, sort of start to piss me off, like, like the presumption that, that these people had done everything important. Right. Well, so then, you know, those, those two impulses or that insight and that impulse kind of came together in an effort to, to think about the history of the United States um, from the standpoint of St. Louis. Now, you know, the fact is I have a fairly um, grim view of the history of the United States. And so that was never going to be a celebratory book. As it turned out, and, you know, more or less unbeknownst to me when I began the book, there's a rich radical history in, in St. Louis. And as I, I worked, that was, an, you know, something that, that I learned about and um, in a way helped me, I think, um, reconcile myself to the, the place that I'm from in, a, in, a, in a, some strange way. You know, I, I read your uh, 2015 article in Atlantic, uh, which might have been about the time you were working on this book. Right. Yes. Uh, it, just quite remarkable about uh, Ferguson's, uh, you know, right where Freddie Gray was shot is right. one of this Fortune 500 companies that's enormous with great. Yeah, right, right. Michael Brown. Tell, tell us about yep. how that sort of sparked uh, using, using this town as a um, you know, as, a, as, the, as the palette for drawing the right. history of our, our country. Well, so, so Michael Brown, uh, uh, after Michael Brown got shot, um, I, I knew that I was going to have to go to do a talk in St. Louis um, a couple months later. And I felt like I couldn't, um, I couldn't go there in good conscience without talking about 
the murder and without talking about the uprising. And so I started to look into the, you know, to look into Ferguson, just because of the sort of the turn of mind that I am, I started by thinking about the political economy. Well, immediately becomes apparent that less than a half mile from, from Canfield Drive, where, where Darren Wilson shot Michael Brown, is the headquarters of Emerson Electric, which is a $26 billion a year corporation that is within the city limits of Ferguson. And because the what news there was that that um, or because a, a, a good deal of the most interesting reporting on Ferguson, um, which was Radley Balco, particularly in the the Washington Post, um, based on work that had been done by the Arch City Defenders, which is a terrific activist organization in St. Louis. It was about the municipal court system and the way the municipal court system in Ferguson and in the other North St. Louis County municipalities was being used to farm poor and working class um, Black people mostly um, for tickets, you know, fines, fees in order to fund the city governments. And, you know, to me, I thought, well, well how can this be happening, right? Why, how can you have a city government that's dependent upon fines for it, the you know for for a large part of its revenue when you have a 26 billion dollar corporation the city limits i mean isn't this what the promise of economic development in the united states is supposed to be that you get these big businesses to locate within your city limits and so they pay taxes and and support city services and so what's going on and so that you know started a journey into the history both of um, how it was happening and, and largely it's happening through the, um, the politics of underassessment and tax abatement in St. Louis County and in, it turns out, um, Missouri particularly, St. Louis particularly, Missouri particularly, but the nation generally. Um, but also brought me to the question of, well, you know, how, how is it that um, this is happening so disproportionately to African-Americans? So a, a very basic sort of question about race and space in the metropolitan area. What, what's, what's the history of um, Black, um, more or less, you know, forced migration out of the city of St. Louis to certain parts, but not other parts of St. Louis County. Why do all the police live, all the Ferguson police, why do they live in West County and commute in? What's the transportation infrastructure that undergirds that, et cetera, et cetera. And, then, and so then that took me back into the history of what I um, came to call in, you know, um, conversation with many, many others, um, structural race, structural racism and, and racial capitalism in the history of St. Louis. Right. And, you know, you're vindicated because in the uh, New York Times, the uh, November 1st, just a couple of days ago, they had a big article, why do so many traffic stops go wrong, talking about, you know, police and this and the article talks exactly about what you're saying, that there's just certain of these municipalities that extract the wealth yeah, from their that's poor right. at, I at saw a that. level that is, um, I, I don't know why it's not more, 
big news, you know. No, it is, and and you know what's 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 was sad and interesting about that article, which I mean, there there were some that, that where the statistics were extraordinary. In the aftermath of of the uprising, in the state of Missouri made a law um, that municipalities were not allowed to take more than twenty percent of their revenue from um, from traffic tickets and fines. That was what Ferguson was doing to begin with. Right, and so they made a meaningless law. I think that the New York Times article, which is fascinating that you, you're referring to, I think they used 10% as their baseline and found um, above 10%, you get this extraordinary level of contact, um, obviously a sense of harassment, um, a legitimate sense of harassment um, in the population, and th that produces these, um, these violent incidents. It was also interesting that, um, you know, none of those, if you look at that map, it's fascinating because they're by and large, you know, in the kind of the, the predictable regional pattern focused in the, in the Southeast out to Texas. But right. the state of North Carolina is, is completely clear on that map. And it's clear because um, revenue from tickets in, in North Carolina goes directly to the state. And so local authorities don't have the same kind of in incentive structure I didn't know that. in North Carolina. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back to your book and the ARC. Yeah. And, and the ARC uh, was there uh, because it was honoring Lewis and Clark. And this was the gateways. It was the gateway city. Yeah. I don't know. It, it was... It was where we started our expansion, and that's where you start your story with St. Louis being this um, uh, story about America. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about how important St. Louis was to the expansion west and the extermination of our, yeah. of our Native American population. Yeah, I, I think that, that St. Louis was... Um, a hub of both the first and second, well, the, the first and third waves of um, removal and genocide in the United States. The first being in the Ohio Valley and St. Louis was the place where the United States Indian Agency under the directorship of William Clark, the, ex the so-called explorer was seated. And um, many of the treaties with the uh, native peoples of the Ohio Valley were signed by Clark there, and then the removal was accomplished through St. Louis. And so it's a, at some point, you know, in the immediately after the, the War of 1812, St. Louis was a gigantic refugee relocation center. Um, after that, St. Louis became, in, in the early 1820s, the Western hub of the United States military. Um, the Western Department of the Army was for most of the um, time before the Civil War um, headquartered in St. Louis. And um, almost all of the uh, Indian wars fought in the Trans-Mississippi West were either staged out of or supported um, from St. Louis, as well as um, the Seminole War. In, in Florida. And indeed, the Department of War was briefly moved to St. Louis in, in the 1870s. And so this was, interestingly enough, um, I, th I think for residents of the city of St. Louis, 
the you know Lewis and Clark expedition and the fact that the Lewis and Clark expedition um, departed from St. Louis is is fairly well known. I think one of the things that that is most surprising to them is the role of the city in 19th century Indian Wars, um, the role of Jefferson Barracks, which is today a decommissioned um, army base south of the city and a, and a military cemetery, um, how, how important that was to, to the United States Army. And I mean, it was, it was as I say, the major um, army base to the west of Mississippi. And it was also the, um, the first place that um, United States Cavalry units were developed and it became the, the center of uh, United States Cavalry um, training all the way up through the 1880s and 1890s, all the way up to, to Wounded Knee. Right. Um, and, and so one of the things that I try to do then is to take that history of Indian removal and genocide and to think about the ways that it um, shaped or in, inflected the history of anti-Blackness in the, in the city of St. Louis in the 19th century and, and on. And, and, and job one was exterminate all the brutes. You know? yeah. I mean, that was just, that was. There's a very strong removalist exterminationist tendency in the 19th century in the history of St. Louis that I think is followed down through the 20th century and up today up through today with a kind of removalist spatial control of, of the black population. And I think that, that one thing that I'm trying to think about in the book is um, the emergence of, or at least the epitomization of a certain kind of Western anti-blackness, a, a style of anti-blackness, a mode, an idiom, a practice of anti-blackness that's different from what happens in the antebellum South. Right. Um, we'll talk and, about that. You're, you're, yeah. you're, let's get into the slavery in Missouri. And you had insight, which I, I hadn't thought of before, that there was a uniqueness to the precariousness of slavery in Missouri, where you could just go across the river and be in Illinois. Yeah. And, and that it had certain properties that were, uh, I don't know, would you say ugly or, or uniquely yeah, I, problematic? I mean, peculiarly violent. Right, right, say. right. Um, you know, people in, some people in St. Louis, I mean, that, that really got their hackles up. And um, I made, in making that argument in the first edition of the book, I made a mistake, which my wife had um, advised me not to make, which is I, I said that it was uniquely violent. And of course, on one level, that's true, because it was the only anti-slave violence that was in St. Louis. But on another level, that really allowed people, you know, to, to go nuts. But it was, I would say that it was particularly or peculiarly violent. And that has to do with two things in St. Louis. It has to do with the um, high number of people who are enslaved as domestic servants and so are in close proximity to slavery. And of course, one of the, one of the most, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I wanna say familiar, but emblematic forms of slaveholding violence is intimate violence. 
Um, and but also, I think because of the proximity to um, juridical freedom in Illinois, and increasingly to abolitionist um, activism in Illinois. So, so there is there's a fantastic book, a big book called um, I'm not going to remember the name right now, but it's it's maybe it's called Born in Bondage, but it's about slavery in Illinois in the slavery in Illinois, so slavery that was sort of grandfathered into the Northwest Ordinance and, and exist, continued to exist in Southern Illinois up through the 19th century, and the politics between Southern Illinois and um, Missouri, it may be called Born in Bondage, did I already say that? Um, and, you know, there were abolitionist um, activists who would, would go to St. Louis and bring people across the river. And so I think from the 1840s on, there was actually a sort of a low intensity war between abolitionists trying to take enslaved people out of St. Louis and slave kidnappers kidnapping free people of color from Southern Illinois and trying to carry them into St. Louis and sell them to down the river to, to New Orleans. So, so that's a piece of the story. The piece of the story that I really focus on is the fact that the people who moved to Missouri after the War of 1812, which is to say after the, the pacification of um, the, the Ohio Valley uh, and, and the peace terms with, with the Osage and the beginning of Osage removal, were non-slaveholding white people mostly from Virginia, but also from places like, like Kentucky and Tennessee. And particularly those Virginians came with a lot of class resentment towards slaveholders. Hmm. They, they, you know, they had lived in a polity that was governed by the, um, the Three-Fifths Compromise in which local governance was misshaped by the over-representation of slaveholding power and property. And they didn't want that to happen in, um, in Missouri. And so one of the things that you see in the Missouri State Constitution is the apportionment of representation on the basis of citizenship rather than on the basis of population, right? So they're, they're trying to, to control apportionment and, and limit it to, you know, the, 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 so the slaveholders won't be overrepresented. The other thing you see is an effort to exclude free people of color from migrating to Missouri. And then that is followed up through the 19th century with various kinds of removalist laws. Um, finally, in, in uh, 1959, 1859, a law which says that all free people of color must register in anticipation of, of uh, removal. And so I try to suggest that, that this removalist notion, the notion of Missouri as a quote, white man's country, epitomizes and becomes the kind of um, example for 
Western anti-blackness in a way that's different from Southern anti-blackness. Southern anti-blackness, it's many, many things. Pro-slavery anti-blackness is many, many things, but it's not removalist because Southern slaveholders recognize that they are dependent upon the reproduction of enslaved people for the social reproduction of their own um, class and privilege and whatever. So the, you know, the last thing they wanna do is um, have all of their enslaved people disappear. The dominant strain of anti-blackness in Missouri and I think in the West is, is removalist and even exterminationist. There, you know, it, it's the notion of the white man's country and the notion that, that, that freedom and equality for white people depends upon the absence, not only of slavery, but also of free people of color. And, and that's been a theme running through um, St. Louis, uh, figuring out ways of removing, removing yeah, people. I think I, so. You, I, I think I used, so. You, in one of your lectures, you, you talked about uh, Del Mar Street and yeah. North and South. And you said, just look at, look, go to Google map and see all the green above because they yeah all the buildings are torn are torn down it's amazing actually yeah you and can see it from outer space yeah and then you look at the the maps of the city today of the high-speed internet it's just delmar and below and crime delmar and below and all of the uh, by any measure they have very effectively um pushed out and controlled the black population and with the right. Uh, all of the um, special zoning. Uh, talk about that. That's you know the lot size minimums and all of those things. Right. Yeah. Just, uh, systemically, yeah. are continually creating this problem. No, that's right. And so, so, so the what I try to do in the book. I mean, largely, it ends up being a a book about the kind of material nexus of capitalism and white supremacy as thought through space as thought through the control of property and land. And so I chart both a, um, a series of removals, the driving out from East St. Louis in 1917, the destruction of the heart of Black St. Louis, which was an area called Mill Creek Valley. And the, um, you know, which is, they, they tore down about 400 acres and, um, populated by about 20,000 people and just just you know with no real provision many of those people ended up in in the Pruitt-Igo um complex in this so that was in 1959 many of them ended up in Pruitt-Igo which was itself blown up in 1972 and so you can almost see a kind of an arc of removal going from East St. Louis to Mill Creek Valley to Pruitt Igo out to, to North County. Now the the and, and then what, what what you're talking about is at the same time there were a set of provisions being put up in order to keep those people from relocating to the zones of white resettlement 
particularly the post-war suburbs. And um, zoning was one of the um, primary modes of um, control. And, and so, you know, there, there's absurd. Well, one thing that used to puzzle me when I was a kid, honestly, is I'm from central Missouri, which is, um, you know, it's by and large pretty rural. But we would go visit my uncle in St. Louis. And I couldn't see why everybody in the, the neighborhood where he lived had these magnificent yards these huge yards and I thought well that you know this isn't this supposed to be a city why why do they have these yards that are as big as small farms well that's because many of the 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 more wealthy suburbs in St. Louis were zoned with minimum lot sizes of one acre so if you have a minimum lot size of one acre that means that only certain people can buy in there at all and there are other you know other ways to to, to many, many, you know, other ways to, to create that same effect. There's a long history of restrictive covenants in, in St. Louis up until and even after 1947, which is the St. Louis-based Supreme Court case in Shelley versus Kramer that said restrictive covenants are, are unenforceable. There's these different um, zoning codes. And of course, in St. Louis, as in so many American cities, there is a long history of um, violent white supremacist intimidation um, to people who try to, to move into neighborhoods. And so I try and chart all that. Now, I, I just be, because since, since we're here, you know, in, in like the, the leftist radio podcast, I want to explain something about that, because I think that this is an argument which has been somewhat, um, I don't want to say deliberately, but um, malfeasantly misunderstood by some of my, my brothers and sisters on the left, which is that they have taken the notion of a series of removals to be an argument that, that the history is somehow a single moment that the history that I'm trying to argue that the history from Dred Scott up to Ferguson is a single moment in the history of white supremacy. That I'm so, you know, that, 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 and they've tried to turn it into an argument that is timelessness, that it's, that it's about the timelessness of white supremacy. And really what I'm trying to argue is about a dialectical relationship that involves repeated removals in the service of changing economic modes of economic extraction, right? And so for me then, that's what makes this an argument about racial capitalism. The mode of extraction in East St. Louis in 1917 is different from the mode of extraction in, in Mill Creek Valley or Pruitt-Igo or indeed Ferguson different people are making money in different ways. And yet the, somehow that, that succession it, it involves a repetition of removal, right? So for me, that, that's why, the, you know, and, and the way that I understand that is by, by racial capitalism, about the way that white supremacy gets drawn through time, through a set of different modes of exploitation and extraction. Right, so, th so this is a very, very recondite argument, but you know, I, I feel that, that, but but it pisses me off a lot 
when people misunderstand it. So I figured, you know, that, that, that this is the, the proper audience for this particular form of recondite radical rage that I have. <laughs> so when we were talking before, Greg and I were talking about your term racial capitalism and Greg, what, what was your point about Naomi Klein with the disaster capital? No, I, I, I have a, a version to uh, these uh, adjectives of racial capitalism, mm -hmm. um, disaster capitalism, neoliberal capitalism. It's a pet of mine, like, you know, I get it off my chest as well. And the reason I have the aversion is that it suggests to me that there's a kind of capitalism that would be okay if we didn't have neoliberalism. It'd be a kind of a capitalism would be okay if we could just get rid of racism. And so I kind of cringe when I hear that, but but I don't read you that way. I mean, I don't read you. That no, that's, that's not at all what I'm saying. Although I, I, I think that that is, I, I mean, I, I think that maybe, I mean, I think you're maybe you're right. The, the, the reading that I'm rejecting, I think is more or less along those lines. Right. But, but, and, and I, I get what you're saying in the, in the sense that number one, the, the the point about you know the the investment in racial capitalism is to argue that I would argue that you know since the since the period of the slave trade and colonization that capitalism has um, existed in and grown through a kind of a dialectical relationship with racial hierarchy, but but then you know some people are going to come back and they say well that's just capitalism let's just call it capitalism. And certainly, and the, the other thing is, is I'm also, whenever I talk about racial capitalism, I'm actually always talking about sexuality and reproduction. So, well, okay, why call it racial capitalism and not call it racial sexual reproductive capitalism? So there's, you know, there are issues, there's a whole field of argument there. Um, but I think you're that that is you're, you're absolutely right that that I'm not trying to say that if we just got rid of the racism, the capitalism would be okay, or right. even to imagine that such a thing would be possible, right? And um, I, what I am trying to do is to insist on a um, history of capitalism and a history of radical practice which imagines and organizes from different positions than a kind, our, our kind of um, long-term focus on, on industrial capitalism and um, the proletariat, right. to, to imagine different kinds of intimately related um, places from which we need to think and organize, whether that's- well, I, um, yeah, yeah. the way I read your book, I think it's an interesting way to read your book. Uh, I found it fruitful and that is to talk about or, or look for or see, and I think you do it very, very well, modes of exploitation and how those modes of exploitation change and shift. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, I'm talking about a dynamism as you're talking about a dynamism, not a fixed uh, uh, kind of position, but as history evolves, as new material conditions arise, there are new modes of exploitation that arise. And I think then you point very, 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 very clearly to how race plays an important role in how those modes uh, evolve. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and how those modes are utilized to make money fundamentally. You know, yeah. it's, it's one of those, uh, I don't want to call it an irony, but it's certainly true in Pittsburgh. I think it's probably true in St. Louis. 
and I think you kind of tell that tale, but how removing blacks today from the cities is profitable. Again, made profitable again through gentrification. Right. And in Pittsburgh, there's a story I tell about, about how it goes. Back when I came as a student to Pittsburgh, they, there's a street that connected with a largely black community, which they literally removed a bridge to keep it away from a more yeah. affluent upper middle class neighborhood. And that's when they surrendered the city to blacks and everybody went to the suburbs. And who made money? Developers. And then they right. turn around 40, 50 years later and make money again and they put the bridge back, you know, right. because now they want that community that was all black. And the victims, of course, are black people and they're super exploited in this situation. Right. And, you know, one of the things it's it's under um, I think it's it's suggested, but a little bit under argued in my in my book is that the the frontiers of those processes, whether it is the um, in, you know, whether it's the incorporation of black suburbs into white dominated municipalities or whether it's the gentrifying suburb, I mean, which is, you know, or whether it is, so whether, whether it is the, um, the, the, the process where, where white people are moving out or where they're moving back in, those are the frontiers of police violence in our society often, those, those, you know where the where the real estate development and speculation is happening is also where the police violence is happening and i think in a way that was what was interestingly misunderstood about ferguson that there was a, there, it was hard for people to understand ferguson as a suburb um and what it is is it is a it, it was up until up through the 1970s, I mean, very much like what you described. I mean, the city of Ferguson was talking in 1976 about building a 10-foot wall between them and a neighboring municipality, majority Black Kinlock. And what Ferguson is now is, is uh, you know, it's, it's not entirely, but it's majority Black, but you have a remaining white police force, right? That kind of last bastion of white municipal control in Ferguson. And I think that creates, that frames the volatility in Ferguson. Right. But then, you know, you have the opposite pattern, which is whites moving back into the city. And in St. Louis, I think um, more slowly than in many American cities, but the downtown now the downtown area in, in St. Louis is becoming a flashpoint area again around um, the enforcement of different kinds of public order, novel forms of public order that are being enforced by the police and then leading to, um, you know, violence, police violence. Let, let's talk about something positive. In, in several of our podcasts, we have discussed the power of the Black sort of socialist Marxist um, influences in communities with their press and being one of the focal points in achieving positive change. And that was the case there, uh, you know, in St. Louis and the activism, the Percy Green climbing the arc and trying to organize the first sit down strikes occurred mm -hmm. in uh, St. Louis, and it it 
for a period of time, it was a real social, positive social change agent. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I, I, would even, I would even say, um, <clears throat> I would even say for a period of time that goes up to the present, right? And so it became clear to me in 2014 and 2015, which were the years of the Ferguson uprising, and then the, um, the football team strike at the University of Missouri, which is in the town that, that I went, that, that I grew up in, that there was, you know, that there was a, a radicalism that, that was in Missouri that I hadn't really known about, in addition to the sort of obdurate, you know, reactionary conservatism that I had. And I began to follow that back. And I think you can, you know, for me, that story really begins, um, well, you, you, could, you could locate it further back than I do, right? You could locate it in, in the Black Hawk War, or you could locate it in the, in the bandits of the, the river bandits, Black river bandits of the 1840s, who I talk about, or the runaways. The moment that I really focus on in the book is the Civil War alliance of German communists in the Union Army. So people, refugees from the revolution of 1848 who were in the Union Army, including Joseph Wedemeyer, who was the, the translator of the German ideology and the publisher of the 18th Brumaire, um, with self-emancipated African-Americans in Missouri. And then you follow that up through the, the general strike in, in 1877, which was in St. Louis an interracial strike and which for a brief moment um, controlled the city of St. Louis and made decisions about production and which factories would be allowed open and which trains would be allowed into the city at what rates. I talk quite a bit about um, the 1930s. Um, you mentioned the sit-down strike at Emerson Electric, um, the, the, the electrical workers in, in St. Louis and um, in the in the Midwest, generally, were it, it were communist aligned, and extremely militant and powerful organizations. I talk quite a bit about a particular strike um, that emerged out of the unemployed councils and Black women's leadership in the unemployed councils in the early '30s at Funston Nut, which That's was the, nut, um, yeah. the largest employer of Black women. In, in the city of St. Louis, 2,500 black women worked for Funston Nut in various factories in St. Louis. And they worked on segregated lines, paid a piece rate. And the conditions by which the, they, both the, the rates they got, but also the conditions around which the labor was organized were, um, made, meant that the worst work felt, dis, felt disproportionately on their part of the line and that they were paid worse than the um, white and um, immigrant white um, women on the rest of the line. So they went on strike in 1933 in um, a kind of an organizational symbiosis with the Communist Party. It was, you know, it was the Communist Party that, and, and a particular organizer who I talk about a lot called William Sutner, who supported this. And um, it was an extraordinary strike with um, 2,500 of the most vulnerable workers in the city going out on strike. And gradually the white women on the lines who had not joined the first day of the strike went out in support of um, the African-American women who had gone out first, all working together with the communists. 
They won the strike after seven days, took the mayor who brokered the agreement to Communist Party headquarters for a celebration. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's an extraordinary story. One that, that I, you know, growing up in Missouri, I just, I just had no idea that that history was there. And so then you follow that story forward to um, some of the, the um, employment protests in the 60s and 70s organized by, um, you know, the great Percy Green um, and, and, and others. You know, Jefferson Bank is a, is a struggle over um, getting, getting black tellers employed at a, a bank where many St. Louis African-Americans had their money. Percy Green climbing the arch in 1964 to protest the fact that no African-Americans were being employed as construction workers or you know, no, no contracts for black workers in this big federal project. You know, and then, then Percy basically went one by one, uh, uh, you know, through Southwest Bell, through um, McLeod Gas, through McDonnell Douglas, through the big St. Louis employers um, trying to, to force them to, to open up uh, employment to African-Americans. Um, Percy Green, I think, is, is for me um, a, a real forgotten hero of, of that era in American history and of um, the left in general. I mean, these enormously creative actions. So climbing the arch in 1964 and shutting down construction. At Jefferson Bank, he and another hero, Eugene Tournour, um, who was a, a white um, radical who came out of the Du Bois clubs, organized uh, what they called, uh, what was it? A, a chain, I mean, they, they basically flooded the lobby of Jefferson Bank with protesters, each of whom had a single dollar bill. And, and, and flooded it waiting to get change from the tellers because change is slow, right? So they, they shut down the bank with this, this strategy. And then there was a, you know, a dog shit protest at Laclede Gas where they smeared dog shit all over the, all over the inside of Laclede Gas. Cause so they go in looking like maintenance workers, right? Because nobody is gonna look twice at a black maintenance worker at Laclede Gas. And they start smearing the wall with dog shit because racism stinks. You know, just, just beautiful, beautiful actions culminating in the um, unveiling of the the veiled prophet, the you know the sort of secret uh, secret king of the St. Louis elite in uh, in the mid seventies. Well, that's been a theme of a lot of our our uh, Greg and my podcast, the uh, FE with uh, Tony. Uh, What's your last name, Greg? Gilpin, Tony Gilpin. Gilpin. Yeah, that's the little uh, Effie and how that small little union did powerful things. Uh, you know, went to uh, went to Kentucky and refused to, uh, you know, and pushed back against blacks not having equal participation in all their jobs and uh, and the auto workers union. You know, I mean, a lot of the benefits that we got through that were strictly through a small group of very radical, radical group of uh, labor leaders, and then pretty much wiped out in the 50s with the craze of the, the Red Scare and all of that. Yeah. They were pretty effective. Yeah, I, I especially appreciated your, your, uh, your honesty about uh, those 30s movements and the role of the Communist Party. Uh, that's not always the case, 
that historians do that. So that that was, uh, you know, I I, th I think that's true, and I I think that for two, you know, I am not a twentieth century historian, right? And so it's not a literature that I I am really conversant in. But what struck me in looking at St. Louis is that there was a secondary effect of the Red Scare, which is that it served to, um, it was used in the first instance, partly as a way to discredit civil rights um, activists. But in the second instance, the fact that civil rights was associated by, by white supremacist reactionaries with communists have made historians of civil rights reluctant to talk about the extent to, you know, to talk about the long history of communists and, and, and black activism. And it's very deep in St. Louis. And that's not to say that it is simple because you know, I make an argument that to some extent the communists misunderstood the moment of the, the Funston strike. Even as they supported it, they weren't able to um, recognize the way that these women theorized themselves and to try to organize through that, right? Um, but that, that, that history is there and very, very powerful and deep. And I, and I, you know, like I say, it may be that I'm just, that, that because I'm not a 20th century his, historian, I haven't read the right books. Although, you know, I've certainly read Hammer and, you know, I've read Gerald Horn and I've read yeah. Robin Kelly, but, but I, I feel like that communist history in the Midwest needs to be lifted up and understood better all the way up through the 50s and maybe after. You know, we, we don't yeah. really have a whole lot of history of the Du Bois clubs. Right, where, right. where do the Du Bois clubs come from and where are they going? Right. And they're certainly yeah. active in St. Louis through the through the 60s. I, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to me because a lot of the uh, revisiting of that period and the final credit given to the Communist Party is coming through a lot of studies on the black radical tradition. Yeah, that's uh, uh, there's a lot of new books and new studies that have come out uh, largely from African-American historians, but also from white historians that uh, know the period. And it's through the back door, so to speak. It's it's bringing to the fore these radical blacks who are communists. Right. And, right. and once that's done, then it opens the door to see that there was a communist party and it played an important role. A number of books yeah. that, are, that are available now about that. In Chicago, the communist right. party, I mean, you think Lorraine Hansberg, right. no one wants to talk about her. She was a communist from, from her college days. Right. And yet uh, the, the Red Scare still looms. I mean, it still looms. looms, I think that's right. So there right. was a... It, in, in St. Louis, the, um, the leader of the Communist Party in the, in the 1940s was a man, well, in the 40s into the 50s, a man called Herschel Walker, who was a, um, in the Electrical Workers Union, he was a custodian at Wagner Electric, a black man, and who walked that line in front of Jefferson Bank at the same time that Percy Green was walking that line. And so there's, you know, so you can connect those two guys. Well, Percy Green then becomes a mentor to many, and, and his, um, his partner, Jamala Rogers, who was a big figure in the Black Radical Congress, they become mentors to the Ferguson generation. And so just through those figures, you can actually connect Herschel Walker in the 40s, his Black communist, up to the, 
the Ferguson protesters. At some point, I was talking to Percy Green about a general strike that he tried to organize in 1979 to protest the closing of Homer G. Phillips Hospital on the north side of St. Louis, the Black Municipal Hospital, um, or the municipal hospital that served Black St. Louis. And I, you know, I started to say, well, why a general strike? Why was this the mode? And he said, well, he wanted to make clear to the entire working class, number one, that if they can do this to us, they can do it to you. That the abandonment of Black St. Louis presages the abandonment of the working class and the poor in general. Mm -hmm. But he said the reason he chose a general strike was because he had been reading about the general strike of 1877. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, that's amazing, right? Because that I'm talking about a tradition that stretches from Herschel Walker to Percy Green to Jamala Rogers to the uh, Ferguson radicals. It's basically like biographical connections. But what Percy was talking about was actually a self-conscious tradition, a self-conscious radical tradition in St. Louis, where in 1979, he was drawing on the interracial general strike in, in 1877. And so for me, you know, since, since we, I think we were getting Pat a little bit depressed, right? He was sort of like, well, let's, <laughs> let's talk about some, yeah. some happy right. stories. And for me, that was, that was a moment, that was an extraordinary moment to think about the, the legacy, right? To think about the way that this is a living legacy that actually lives um, in, in St. Louis today. And, and, you know, indeed, that protest generation has gone on um, to do what are, to my mind, um, extraordinary things that they're trying to do in the city today. Well, let, let's go back to being depressed a little bit. And, um, <laughs> and you as a historian, I, I was just amazed in the Virginia election that just occurred and this whole critical race thing which uh, the, the guy that started that, Rufo, lives just five miles away in Gig Harbor, and he organized uh, opposition to uh, school board candidates. And uh, th this, this whole issue of censoring historians, um, that Toni Morrison's book in a senior AP class, Beloved, <laughs> is, the, is the focal point of state legislatures how, how depressed are you on a daily basis in trying to be a realistic historian and uh, I mean, a, a, a historian dealing with these, these groups that are trying to reframe and redefine American history in this disingenuous way? I mean, is that hitting you in the classroom? Is that, is that oh, yeah. hitting you in... Well, I'm, I mean, a, you know, as, as far as that goes, um, it, as in many other ways, I'm in a very insulated position at a you know private institution um, in a state where that that sort of politics exists, but it's not the dominant strain. It is um, ludicrous and upsetting. I think that that it is one of the things that I tried to do in the book and have tried to do in my life really is to speak to 
alienated, antisocial white kids in St. Louis County. And to say, well, okay, you know, why don't you identify yourself as, as Joseph Vedemeyer? Or why don't you identify yourself as Eugene Tournor, this act, you know, the, the activist or Hetty Epstein, the concentration camp survivor who became a Ferguson activist and a Palestinian rights activist. There's countless people, right, who are elided from that sort of notion that, um, History is 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 you know that the teaching history honestly makes white kids feel guilty or whatever. But also to say, well, you know what's going to happen is your kids are going to be angry when they find out you have lied to them. Right. The thing that honestly that I used to, and I've been thinking about it all day today for some reason. The the thing that helps me understand this moral panic over critical race theory is. Um, Stuart Hall's book, Policing the Crisis, and which is a book about a moral panic in um, Thatcherite England over mugging. And Hall's argument is, you know, more or less, he, he's taking that, the, the, the Gramscian notion that at the moment, you know, the, 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 the old order has broken down. And the new order is struggling to be born. And now is the time of monsters, right? I, I haven't done a great job with that quotation, but I think that's what we see in our society. I think that, you know, I think that, that um, the failure of either the Republican Party as the party of Wall Street or the Democratic Party as the other party of Wall Street their, their collective failure to provide security for the mass of the population led to their final discrediting. And that, that Trump is evidence of the fact that, that, that nobody believed in that anymore. And Biden is a kind of a restoration of that vision but there, there's not a, you know, not even the Democratic Party under the restorationist Biden, it's Biden has the, 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 the capacity to um, advance an agenda that's actually going to care for people in the United States. It's still a politics that are, that are increasingly a politics of abandonment. I think that it's in, in that time that you get monsters like the panic over critical race theory or just the assertion of force as the dominant feature of government through through the police right and and i think that and, and so in that sense i i i think it is a a very nasty and terrifying moment and i i would be lying to you if i didn't say i wasn't trying to figure out a way to get a pat portuguese passport to move to, to, you know, but at the same time, I mean, I think that it is, it, there, there's an opening, right? That, that you know, that the, this, this state of crisis that we're in is an opening for a new kind of politics. And that's, you, you see on the left, a much broader conversation, right? You, you can, I mean, there's things that I can say in a classroom of, to students at uh, Harvard that they will understand, they may not agree with, 
but they will understand as making sense in a way that is un, would have been unimaginable for me even 10 years ago. Right. Right. And so I think that there's, there's something there that's, you know, that's exciting too. Right. The, the, the superintending climate catastrophe is harder to, you know, put a, to, to polish up and put a bright face on. It's uh it's not fair to expect your book to have everything in it, but I did notice that you didn't really talk a lot about our two-party system and electoral politics. And yeah, that's okay. I mean, it's Zen, you can't do everything. But I think that's, I would argue that that's one of the reasons that we are constrained, that we are limited. Uh, they are, we are no, I mean, I think we've outlived in one sense or another, the potential of that two-party system. That two-party oh, yeah. system just can't do the job going forward. And uh, those people that still are investing in the Democratic Party, I don't know what it's going to take for them to wake up and say, it's just not happening. Yeah. Now, no, you're no, dreaming no. about the New Deal in 2021 when it's disappeared. You're, yeah. you're talking about Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in 2021 when many people weren't even alive, born then. And it's been that long since the Democrats have done anything. Right. So again, I, I, I think we, uh, if we want to address the positive, we've got to break out of that two-party box that we're locked into. No, I agree with that. I mean, yeah. you know, to, just to, to put a little hopeful blush on it, I mean, it's, it, it is emblematic and interesting to me that both Josh Hawley and Cori Bush come out of Missouri. Yeah. Cori Bush out of St. Louis. And I think that Cori Bush is, you know, to me, one of the most interesting and, and hopeful figures in the United States government. And I think she's the, she's one of the, the people, you know, to come out of that Ferguson generation. And Mark McCloskey. Yeah, Mark McCloskey. So yeah. I did, you know, there's a, there's a paperback version where I have a little coda about the McCloskeys. So, yeah. No, but I think you said right with the, the corporate uh, party representation with the Democrats and the Republicans. I just finished David Sirota's new book. Uh, it's an audio book called Meltdown. And he clearly points a straight line from the financial crisis to Trump. You know? mm -hmm. and because of the inability of democratic representation you know i mean i just heard today that the democrats are all in for the salt tax you know that's that yeah benefits uh, you know what what is going on and uh, and the media of course isn't very helpful with all this too so anyway it's af it's it's afternoon here so i can start day drinking uh to kind of <laughs> deal with this. you know we said we'd be an hour this has just been so much fun and i have looked forward to uh, your books. I'll keep. Uh, I'll, I'll put you on my. I will Google list. So every time you pop up and do a bad tweet or something, I'll be able to hear about it. And uh, uh, and what what are you working on next? Well, I am. I think I'm trying to write an autobiography. Not an autobiography, though. That was a wonderful slip. I'm not even sure I can continue after saying that. I'm gonna try to write a biography of John Brown. And um, to try to think about Brown as um, an economic thinker, as well as um, an anti-slavery thinker, um, to think about him as a kind of, uh, you know, primitive church cap communist, and also as a Christian anarchist, and to, to try and think a little bit about the, um, about anarchist thought 
in the United States in the 19th century, of which I think there was a good deal more than we, you know, generally think. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, great. Well, thank that's you. Great thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a real treat for me, and I know Greg too. Exactly. And, uh, yes. Endorse we'll it. Keep in, we'll keep in touch. And I will, by the way, everybody that's on our podcast, I send a little FE farm equipment button, the little Communist Party. So I'll expect to have a small little button. And uh, you see Gerald Horn, he has one also. You, you're in the club now. I will wear it. I will wear it with pride. That, that's our, that's our, that's the only bling you get is a little button. That's like, you know, that's, 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 it sounds like a pretty solid piece. So, okay. All right. Thanks again. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Take all care. Right. See y'all later. All right.